Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just a quick note of thanks to the photographer who took the photograph which adorns the podcast cover art, and that's Sora Shimazaki, and the photograph is from Pexels. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. A reasonably quiet week this week, so I don't expect this will unduly detain us today. Some decent money laundering stories, especially around the publication in the United Kingdom of the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, some updated sanctions news, and a little bit on fraud. Let's get cracking. We'll start with sanctions. Very small amount of news this week. Interesting stories about cracks appearing in the EU and well, it'll be no surprise that it actually comes from Hungary, but we'll start with the United Kingdom. First, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has updated its Russian sanctions guidance with the addition of three new frequently asked questions relating to food security and insurance. The questions relate to the, in- the insurance of Russian ships and cargo carrying food and fertilizer from Russia and Ukraine to a third country. Uh, whether financial institutions are able to provide financial services to support food and fertilizer exports from Russia and Ukraine, and whether the production uh, production and distribution of fertilizer is covered by licensing for the purposes of food security. The answers seem to be, respectively, apply for a license, yes, as long as a license is in place, and yes, again, since fertilizer production and distribution is within the food security licensing purpose. The link to the PDF document of the guidance with the frequently asked questions is available in the podcast description. Beyond the UK, in the EU this week, Hungary uh, has been at it again. The Orban administration appears to be just about Putin's only ally within the European Union, and its lead and members continue to prattle on about not imposing further sanctions on Russia and further possibly even removing sanctions which are currently in place. I don't think it has legs, but it seems to be a useful distraction for the administration given the recent threats by the EU to withhold funding from Hungary for its failures in relation to anti-corruption. I expect to see a lot more of this, but to be frank, I can't take it with other than a pinch of salt. That said, the EU is preparing a further round of sanctions in light of Putin's more sabre-rattling this week, the nuclear threats that he made. So in that context, it may be that they either don't happen or they are somewhat watered down. It depends on the attitude of Hungary. Further, there has been a little movement on EU sanctions, broadly mirroring those questions which have been added to the Russia sanctions guidance by the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. The European Commission has updated the Directive on Economic Sanctions by providing that the sanctions regime does not prevent coal exports from Russia to third countries. So coal is now added to fertilizer, animal feed, wood and cement as being possible to transport so long as finance and insurance can be arranged. In the United States, following the announcement last week, by the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of of Foreign Asset Control, 
that it had designated 22 individuals and two entities in relation to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Of course, the link to that is in the description. The US Treasury Department has gone hard again this week by indicating that some sanctions evasion may be going on using crypto. Now, this is a theme they are returning to. I've already addressed this in an earlier edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, where in April, the Treasury Department was aware of the possible breach of sanctions being undertaken by crypto. And I certainly expect more of this in light of this announcement this week. It's clearly in the sights of US policymakers. Certainly, it seems to be more rigorously in the sights of them than it was before. That's it for sanctions. As I said, wasn't a lot to say. Let's move on to a bit of fraud. Now, there is more churn around COVID-19 scammers, only this time it's the US. What I've done is I've tracked a lot of these stories in the UK and I've covered them over various weeks in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. In fact, I've not only covered the stories, but I've also covered the policymakers' responses to those. But this time the news comes from the US. It's news that 50 individuals have been charged in relation to a COVID funding scam. The Minnesota-based operation, which was, it seems to me, acutely well-organized, resulted in around 250 million US dollars of federal funds being directed from a scheme designed to feed children during the pandemic. The fraudsters purchased cars, jewellery and land across the US and overseas. The scam was allowed to happen, it would appear, for reasons which frankly are all too familiar to anyone following COVID-19 scams anywhere in the world, but particularly in the UK. In fact, there is a real echo of the problems that were generated in the UK with this case in Minnesota. It seems that the need for speed in getting aid to those who needed it, together with generous eligibility rules and a limited degree of oversight, all contributed to mean that the fraudsters found it way too easy to carry out the scam. These are themes well rehearsed in the UK and, frankly, across the world. I think there are important lessons to learn, and certainly policymakers seem to be very aware of the keen need to learn from the failings which resulted in the dramatic financial fraud which happened in relation to COVID schemes across the globe. In the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority has warned consumers about scams which are claiming to be able to write off debts. The press release provides, and again, this has echoes of other stuff that was being said during the pandemic. This is a direct quote. The firms might try to convince individuals by pointing to ideas such as straw man, freemen of the land, sovereign citizens. These ideas promote the belief that the government and laws of a country have no powers over people. Of course, it's rubbish, total rubbish, but people fall for it because... If you're vulnerable and emotionally compromised, then it's easier to believe something than when you're fully seized of what's going on. If you want to have a look at the press release, it's there. Be aware would be the advice to give anybody a family member who might be struggling. But the press release is in the podcast description. And now this week we shift to money laundering to end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. 
There's a decent level of news churning the wires this week. We'll start with the EU. Uh, At the end of last week, the EU held a seminar at the European Court of Auditors in Luxembourg, where a panel of experts discussed the proposed new EU anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism legislation. The discussion was wide-ranging and covered all material aspects of the proposed legislation, together with content on the structures in place at an institutional level to sustain the EU's fight against money laundering and terrorist financing. To this end, the new anti-money laundering authority was considered as well as its place within existing European Union structures. The seminar's long. If you have the four hours plus to spare, you can relive the entire thing on YouTube. The link is in the podcast description. If you want more on the establishment of the EU's new anti-money laundering authority, this week blog post on the LSE website, the LSE, the London School of Economics, not the London Stock Exchange, on the LSE website should satisfy your needs. In it, Sebastian Diesner discusses the function of the new anti-money laundering authority, why it is needed, and where it will be cited within the European Union. The link to the blog post is in the podcast description. In the UK now, and a significant money laundering story made the news this week, the United Kingdom government has published the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill. The bill proposes broad changes to the law designed to fight economic crime, but makes specific changes to money laundering laws, and I think it's just worth having a chat about those. First, it proposes to create new exemptions from the principal money laundering offences to reduce reporting by businesses carrying out transactions on behalf of their customers. This is clearly driven by concern at the number of suspicious activity reports, or SARs, submitted and the delays associated with them while they're being investigated. Now, this is something that I've covered not reasonably consistently over various episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Policymakers have been looking at this issue of SARS and how their, essentially, a degree of defensive compliance is leading to to too great a number of SARS being made. Essentially, the bill is looking to try and soft pedal or dampen the number of SARS being made. So, specifically, what the bill does is exempt from money laundering offences in two circumstances. First, where a business in the regulated sector ends a business relationship with a client or customer and for that purpose hands over property worth less than £1,000. And secondly, where a business in the regulated sector is dealing with property for a client or customer and keeps hold of property worth at least as much as the part of that property to which the knowledge or suspicion relates. Of course, knowledge or suspicion is central to the mens rea of those offences. The bill also provides law enforcement with new powers, and actually the serious fraud office has said quite a lot across the course of the week on this. Um, The new powers relate to the obtaining of information to address money laundering and terrorist financing. The explanatory note provides, the measures in the bill will assist the National Crime Agency officers proactively to gather intelligence without reliance on a suspicious activity report, a SAR. 
They will align the power more closely with international recommendations in relation to the functions of a financial intelligence unit, an FIU, which reorientates the power towards assisting the National Crime Agency in carrying out its functions to conduct intelligence gathering and conduct analysis rather than being investigatory focused as it is now. The bill will do this by first removing the requirement of a preceding suspicious activity report in order to enable the National Crime Agency proactively to gather intelligence, and secondly, amending the conditions for the magistrates or sheriff courts in Scotland to make orders to businesses in the anti-money laundering regulated sector where the information is likely to assist the National Crime Agency or an overseas financial intelligence unit making a request to carry out its financial intelligence unit functions. The bill also proposes to prevent the abuse of partnership vehicles for purposes of money laundering and to generate more information sharing to get around well-established bank confidentiality rules, although I'm not entirely convinced that's, convinced that's such a big thing because there are already well-established exceptions to what's known as the Tournier case. The Tournier case is the case which sets down bank confidentiality at common law in England and Wales. Therefore, the proposals in relation to information sharing are that businesses covered by the provisions to share customer information with each other for the purpose of preventing, investigating and detecting economic crime, crime by disapplying civil liability for breaches of confidentiality where information is shared for these purposes. It seems that it's a quite narrow exception just for the result to be achieved. For in terms of economic crime, in that instance, uh, the definition of economic crime is the one which is listed in Schedule 8 of the bill, which includes, of course, all the usual suspects, money laundering, sanctions evasion, fraud, bribery, terrorist financing, market abuse and tax evasion. The link to the bill and all associated publications can be found in the podcast description. One thing I would say, no certain timetable has been provided for when the bill will become law, if indeed it does, although it does have government support, so it's got a better chance than most. That's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me all being well once again next Sunday with the usual weekly roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.